Revelation and chapter 16, please. <coughs> and I'll just read the first verse to introduce, and we'll take it up from there, all right? Revelation chapter 16. And I heard a great voice out of the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go your ways, pour out the vials or the bowls, of the wrath of God upon the earth. Now from this chapter, chapter 16 through to chapter 20, we are now moving into pictures of finality, pictures of final blessing and pictures of final judgment. Now chapter 15 really prepared us for this because it started, you remember, with a picture of wonderful blessing. You, you saw the redeemed singing the songs of Moses and of the Lamb, and they're in the very presence of God, and they're on the crystal sea. They're in the fullness of glory and of the triumph of God as they've overcome and safe at last. They're in the glory, and they're singing the praises of him who died. And they are singing of their redemption and they are glorifying God. Lovely picture of blessing that awaits us in the future. Picture of blessing. That was from verses 1 down to verse 4. Then from verse 5 to verse 8, you remember, there was a different picture. It was a picture of impending judgment, blessing and judgment. You remember the temple that was opened and it was filled with smoke and it's a picture we saw of God coming out in all his suffocating holiness and wrath to execute judgment upon sinful man and a sinful world. We saw how he ordered all his angels, there's seven of them coming out of that temple and they are clothed in white and their golden sashes and you can see them there as solemnly they come out in procession. They're not smiling exactly, they're certainly not singing. And that angel from the very presence of God right, right by the throne comes out and gives them the seven bowls of judgment. You can just get the picture of it all, white, gold, seven solemn bowls full of the wrath of God. And you see there's a picture on the one hand of blessing and there's a picture on the other hand of impending judgment. Now that's what we're going to have from, verse, from chapter 16 onwards. Just to give you the structure of 16 to 20 because it's helpful in reading books to, to know the general pattern, the trend of where we are going. Often it's like, you know, following the... Uh, instructions of the in the car as to trying to get somewhere they tell you turn left turn right turn left turn right but if you stand in, you, in the middle of it all you think well where am i going and where i am am i at the moment whereas if you can stand back and look at the overall route you sort of you've got a much better picture now that's what we do here all right in chapter 16 through to chapter 20 what you've got here is a structure firstly we're looking at judgment because that's what we're at in chapter 16 and in chapter 16 itself it's it's a picture, an overall picture of the overall judgment of God upon a sinful world. It's a picture of chaos and cosmic chaos, disarray, confusion, dreadful suffering, the unbeliever under the hand of God in judgment in the coming day. That's chapter 16. 
When you get to chapter 17 and chapter 18, it's more a picture of God coming out in judgment on the system of evil that has been operating, binding men together in opposition against God. It's the system of evil that's exposed and God comes down in terrible judgment on Babylon. Remember? Babylon. That systematized evil society that is so intertwined and interwoven and interdependent, but all with the same aim, empowered by the same demon, by the same devil, for the same reason as opposition against God. Babylon, right? When we come to look at blessing, we won't be looking at Babylon. We'll be looking at Jerusalem above. It'll be the tale of two cities. That's what it'll be. The tale of two cities, how different they are. But then you get to chapter 20, and it's a judgment, another picture of judgment. But in chapter 20, it's more judgment, God judging the individuals of the great white throne. So you've got the general picture in chapter 16 of God judging the world and mankind as a whole. Then you've got 17 and 18, God judging the system of evil in that world. And then finally in chapter 20 in the great white throne, God is judging the individual. Now I hope that holds it together because sometimes it seems so disjointed when you read Revelation. Well, this is actually a pastoral letter. This is a letter written to a church, to churches. And when you write a letter, it's not that haphazard. It's pretty structured. So I hope that just gives the line of thinking. So we read into chapter 16, and by the time you've read chapter 16, you really realize that you're confronted with a powerful, a very powerful picture of God coming out into the world, finally raining down his judgment. And by the time you finish reading it, you sort of realize that, hold it, this judgment is, is a reality. It's not a myth. It's not a little fairy story made up for religious people. It's a reality. And what's more, you, you realize that it's also a certainty. Judgment is a certainty. You, you'll never say again, oh, I, I don't think God could do that sort of thing. You'll never say that it doesn't sort of fit in with him being a God of love. Once you've read chapter 16, you're suddenly set back and made to realize things. Judgment is a reality. Judgment is a certainty. And the other thing is, judgment is actually a necessity. Sin has to be dealt with. If sin is not repented of and forsaken and forgiven, if sin is not atoned for, then sin has to be dealt with and sin actually has to be removed so that it exists, the words of the scripture, it exists no more forever. Absolute necessity that there's going to be a coming judgment. I mean, do you, do you really think that, that this blatant rejection of God, this, this blatant rebellion against God will actually go unpunished? Could you really think that? I mean, do you really think that the naked cruelty and the incredible persecution of the people of God over the centuries, do you really think that that'll go unrequited? Do you really think that heaven just is forgotten all about the martyrs of the past, the suffering in the present, and the martyrs of the present? Do you really think that God will not punish a blatant, sinful rebellion against himself, that he will not requite at the hands of those who've afflicted it the death of the martyrs and the blood of the saints and the persecuted, persecution of his people? I mean, if you think that, if that such a scenario could actually be true, then I tell you, God wouldn't be a righteous God. 
And there wouldn't be such a thing as justice. Do you realise that? There'd be no justice. God would not be righteous. And the truth is that God also would never have kept his promises. God is a promise-keeping God. He gives promises of blessing and he gives promises of judgment. Now when it comes to promises of blessing, we all know that he keeps them. We've received, we've been made heirs of the promises, haven't we? (laughs) Promises given to Father Abraham we were meditating on this morning. Righteousness by faith. A city which has foundations, a glorious future, all bound up in the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know he keeps his promises of blessing. Amen to that. But the truth is, is the same God. He keeps his promises of judgment. If it wasn't so then he would not be a promise-keeping God. And he's a God who cannot lie. He is a God who is absolutely true and and righteous. He is a God of equity and justice. There's no double standards. It doesn't change by circumstances, by happenings, or by background. God is a God of absolutes. He offers forgiveness or he acts in judgment. He offers a substitute or us and a saviour, or the sinner must stand before God alone, having neither and no answer for their sin. And if the whole principle is, if good is going to be rewarded, then evil has to be punished. Or I say it again, God is not a righteous God. And what you'll find as you read through chapter 16, particularly like, for instance, in verse 7, a voice says, True and righteous are thy judgments, O Lord God Almighty. They are true and they are righteous. Now before I actually start to read the chapter, let me just bring in a few thoughts about till we have a better understanding of the wrath of God as revealed here in this part of the book of Revelation. The wrath which God will show in a day to come. The fullness of his wrath which is undiluted and it's pictured in those seven bowls filled to the brim and there's not one bit of wrath that's missing out of the bowls that those angels are carrying it's a it's a fearful thing the judgment and wrath of god is firstly punitive that is its actual punishment It's not reformative. It's not with a view to, well, reforming the individual so that they learn more acceptable behaviour. That's not what this is all about. This is actually not even as a deterrent for others. What we're looking at here is pure punishment for sin. It's hard for us to grasp that today because we don't have that idea of punishment any longer. Indeed, it seems wrong to be punishing people. You're oppressing them or you're being unjust or you're being unfair or you're not considering their weaknesses. Now, that's not where we're at here. We're at here, punitive punishment for sin. Now, what you've got in here in Revelation for wrath is even more than we've already seen of the wrath of God revealed now, here and now. There is such a thing. God is acting in wrath even here and now, upon sinful man. Romans chapter 1 makes that very clear. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Man says, I will have no God. Man says, I will not keep his law. God says, I am revealing to you, letting you know that you are right now 
under my wrath. You say, well, how does that work? Well, you see, Romans 1 explains it very clearly because it says when man, when humankind deliberately reject God, the creator, when there is clear evidence of his existence, of his power and his Godhead, when they reject God, their creator, and they make another God or make themselves into God, right? Make themselves to be their own God, then God gives them over. He removes restraint. And it says he gives them up to uncleanness. In other words, he gives them to have what they want and then to suffer the consequences. And that's a society in which we're living today. You can see things have changed so dramatically. As the Western world has turned away from the God that they once acknowledged, even if it was only lip service acknowledgement, if it was only just sort of a, a, you know, a token acknowledgement, they nevertheless acknowledged right and wrong and they acknowledged God as creator gone they said we want it no more well says god i'll let you have what you want instead you want your own god you want to be your own self gods then the consequences of that you'll live your life in a society without me and with the consequences of your own behavior that's god giving them up to what it says he gave them up to gave them over to uncleanness to practice things without any sense of restraint he gives them up to vile affections you see males with males working shame and receiving within themselves the consequences that are due from that behavior and he gives them up to a it says a reprobate mind he said you won't have me in your knowledge it says that they prefer not to have God in their knowledge. So he gives them up to a reprobate mind. He said, you won't have me? Well, in my wrath, I'll let you work things out from yourself and you'll have a mind that's twisted, a mind that th- can't think right. It can't see good and evil. It doesn't have any understanding. You can't see the beginning from the end and you don't even know where you're going, but you're going to live like that. You can see that today. Look at the chaos we're in. Have you ever seen the Western world in the chaos that it's in today? I don't just mean Queensland. I don't just mean Australia. I mean the Western world in turmoil. Everybody's got their own idea because they're all thinking with a reprobate mind. They've got no absolutes to go by, no railway lines, no reference point. And God stands back and said, you left me out of your equation. Therefore, what you've got is a reprobate mind, a mind that is confused with evil and has no standards, no boundaries, no railway lines to go by. And this is what they wanted. He said, this is what you've chosen. You have rejected me. So right now you will suffer the consequences of such a choice. And that's the society we have. And if you read Romans 1, that's the whole point of verse 29 to the end. It describes the society that we live in today. And it's a society of despair, of filth, of greed, of hate, of murder, of bitterness, of anger. And the best they can do to get any kind of satisfaction is to have fellow delight in those who behave the same way as they do. And in an orgy of evil and wickedness, they shake their fists in the face of God and say, we'll live like this. God says, I'll let you, and you'll die like this. And when you die like this, you'll be judged because of this. There will be punishment, for the sin is deliberate. So that's God, as it were, allowing things to take a certain course and locking people into the choice that they have made and holding them accountable for the rejection of himself which they made and in the desire to choose their own way, right? Almost, I speak carefully here, 
almost a passive outcome, if you get what I mean. It's a bit like, there it is in John 3 and 36 again. He that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now that's not referring straight off to what's going to happen in the future for the Christ rejecter. It abides on him now. It means the unbeliever, he that believeth not, it's a clear, it's a clear action of will where you believe not, the wrath of God abides on them in the sense that they will now live their life without God, without hope, without meaning, without direction, without resolution, and without understanding. And when they come to die, they won't know how to do it. Now you say, yeah, that's all right, so what? No, not so what. Have you ever thought what it must be like to live your life without the Lord? Have you ever thought about that? Look, I spent 45 years working very closely with people, families, individuals, through their happinesses, their tragedies, their chaos and their confusion. And many a time you just stare at them and think, I don't know how you cope without the Lord. The fact is they don't cope without the Lord. You try sitting at the deathbed with a family all around you and a loved one's going into the glory. No, they're not. They're going into the awfulness of a as unforgiven sinners into a Christless eternity and everybody's tragically upset. What can you say? What comfort do they have? What answers do they have? I mean, Claire's come home this week telling us dreadful stories about the happenings in the children's hospital, about a mother who loses her baby and she's out of her mind. She's literally beyond herself with tears and grief and screaming, my baby, my baby, where is my baby? Bring me back my baby. And she's back the next day, wandering through the world, screaming out the same thing. Why, the poor woman, she has no answer. Thank God they're little babies with the Lord. Thank God for that. But she doesn't know that, you see. And that's what it means, the wrath of God is abiding on those who believe not. It's, like a, it's more like a storm cloud that's, that's over their head bringing in that darkness, that awful darkness of confusion and no understanding. It's there following them wherever they go, casting its shadow. But it hasn't burst yet, you see. The storm hasn't really broken. Now that's what we're dealing with in chapter 16. The storms break. The storm breaks. And that final cloud of judgment comes from the hand of of a God who is righteous, who must ultimately punish sin. And in Revelation 16, it's not just the absence of God in the individual life, nor is it just the absence of his blessing in the individual life or in the life of the world. It's not them just living with the outcome of their sin. It is the presence of God himself in active wrath, not in pending wrath, in active wrath. It is God's unchanging attitude and response to sin finally revealed in all its terror. Remember what we said some weeks back when we talk about the idea of wrath, it involves anger, it involves hate and it involves punishment. These are incredible words. God is angry with the wicked every day. It says in Psalm 45 and in Hebrews 2, he loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. 
Hate is, a, is an inward passion which most of us as human beings are not capable really of handling or coping with unless you hate sin, which is the bit we don't get very well these days. That's right, that's righteous, that's hate, hatred in that way is righteous. But it's a, it's a it, shall I say, a, an emotion, if you will, that can drive you to dreadful things, but God has it in his perfection. And it's part of his wrath as finally his fixed, unchanging attitude to sin comes out in all its fullness and in its reality. A constancy of fury, judgment, penalty coming down from God. Are you getting the picture? A constancy of fury, judgment, penalty coming down from God. So when John wants to put it in pictorial form, he uses things like heat, you see, Heat is something that is coming out in fury, in strength. He uses pictures of hail, something coming down in strength. As a matter of fact, the hailstones in chapter 16, they actually weigh a talent, which is, would you believe it, 59.6 kilograms. Now, a bag of cement's only 40 pounds, isn't it? Whatever that is. 59.6 kilograms in one hailstone. So you get the idea of, of what is coming down. And you get the fury of heat scorching in chapter 16, where the heat is something that's coming out. And then you get the earthquake where something is rising up from below. Powerful forces. Powerful pictures to portray the meaning of the wrath of God in the fury of judgment and penalty coming out finally in that day to come. This is what God thinks of sin. This is how God judges sin. And if you can grasp that, you will understand something of his mercy that right now he withholds that judgment in order that all men might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the wonder of the gospel of God, the blessed gospel of God. Now, with all that in mind, you get the picture in the background. And you know now where you're sort of going. We're looking at the general judgment on the earth and upon the unbeliever. Then we're looking at the judgment particularly upon the systematized evil that makes the whole of society as evil as it is and its corruption. Then on the judgment of the individual of the great white throne. But here now in chapter 16 we read. Go to verse 2 please. We'll go through verse by verse and just comment fairly briefly just on what each verse seems to bring up in its principle. All right? What does it say in verse 2? And the first, this is the first of those angels. Now just get the picture in your mind of there's seven of them all in a line, right? They're standing solemnly with their bowls, each one full of the wrath of God. One by one they move out and they pour it from above onto a sinful world. And the first went and he poured out his bowl upon the earth. And there fell a loathsome and a grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. This dreadful pestilence fell upon men who had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. Please let me make it clear. Someone who's got the mark of the beast is someone who has deliberately chosen to serve Satan and rejected the serving of God. They have gladly and willingly taken his mark and claimed him and allowed him to take ownership of them because they wanted him to and they wanted to worship the beast, worship that which is satanic. They wanted to. It doesn't happen to you by mistake. Nor even when you get a jab. <laughs> you get the idea. 
Let's think clearly and not get our prophecy all mucked up. It doesn't happen that way. It's not, it's not the way it teaches in scripture. Okay. What's the point here in this verse? What happens here is that health is affected. You see that? That's really what's happening here. Health is affected under the hand and judgment of God. I'm not going to tell you what COVID's all about. Because when it's all said and done, we don't really yet have all the answers, do we? But don't say that there's not the hand of God in it. It already bears the marks of judgment as it brings fear, deception, and division. There it is, verse 2, already pictured for us, you see. How relevant this is. We see the coming events casting their shadows before. There's something worse ahead. Then we go to verse 3 and to verse 4. The second angel poured out his bowl upon the sea. It became as the blood of a dead man. I think that's a dreadful picture. I mean, I'm used to blood. (laughs) It's sort of red, cheerful stuff, actually. (laughs) But the the blood of a dead man, that's, that's dark. That's cold, literally. And it really is dark and a loathsome looking thing. It scarcely moves, you know. Red blood pumps and runs. The blood of a dead man just seeps. And it's cold. Whoa. The sea's like that. And every living soul dies in the sea. And then the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of water, all the fresh water, and they became as blood. You can see what's going on. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what they call the environmental disaster of every living creature in the sea dead? This isn't man-made either. You want to talk about environmental disasters, just about every living creature in the sea is dead. It's not man-made, nor can it be remedied by man. This is the very hand of God. And he says, I heard the angel of the waters say. Now, Now, who's in control of the sea? Who's in control of the rivers and the springs of water? Who is in control? God has clearly put an angel, as it were, taking that responsibility. They're one of his, they're one of his messengers. They're his servants. And they're part of holding up creation and continuing its operation. God did not just create the world, give a few laws of natural science, and then walk away and leave it to like a cock to tick off by itself. And when it goes wrong, it goes wrong. No, the maker is the sustainer of the universe. And you see, you get this already brought into you here in some sort of pictorial way to give you some understanding. Some understanding. The angel of the waters says, Thou art righteous. There it is. You're right, he says. You are right. O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. You are right to do what you are doing, because you are a righteous Lord. And he says, the one who art and wast and shalt be. In other words, he was righteous, he is righteous, he always will be righteous. The unchanging God is a God of unchanging righteousness, just as back in the days of Abraham, when who believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. God righteously accredited to Abraham the righteousness of that in, in which he had believed, which of course was Christ, for he saw him, he said he rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and it was glad. So God is not changed. 
And the angel of the waters acknowledges that fact, that in the very way in which he's judging, it's right. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, given them blood to drink, he says, for they are worthy. This is what they deserve. This punishment fits the crime. This is perfect justice. This is perfect equity, right? It's not the using of a law and producing a bad result where you think, that's not fair. There's a lot of that in the law today. Man adjudicates and produces situation which may be according to the law and produce punishment, but sometimes it's plain not really fair. Equity means fairness. And that's exactly what the angel of the waters is attesting to. A righteous God who is perfectly just and he acts in absolute equity, completely fair. They did this to your people. You have returned upon them the same kind of payment. Verse 7. I heard another voice out of the altar. You see that? Affirming the angel of the waters. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgment. The God of almightiness. He too, who is the God who continues to be what he ever will be, the God who is, who was and is to come, the righteous God, true and righteous, are thy judgment. Now just notice as we pass that this is the first voice. You notice the first voice which was up there in verse 1, it came out of the temple. All right. The second voice now that speaks, and this one comes out of the altar. And we said it came out of the temple because it's the very presence of God. It's, the, the, it's, it's in view here. It's right into the very holiest of God. And what was in that temple? You remember what was in that temple? There wasn't any priest in there. He couldn't go in with a sacrifice, but the law was in there. And so there comes out from the voice, from the presence of where the law is standing, unanswered, with no sacrifice, with no priest, spelling out condemnation and punishment and judgment for sin. The voice comes from the law, where the law is, you see. And now the voice comes from the, from the altar, now, normally you go to the altar, and what do you find? You find forgiveness at the altar, don't you? The priest would go, and he'd bring a sacrifice, he'd put it on the altar, and sin was forgiven. But there's a voice coming from the altar. Why? Well, there's no priest in there. Remember the smoke? The suffocating holiness of God and his wrath? No man could enter, not even a priest. And so the altar's standing there with its fire of judgment burning, waiting for a sacrifice, but the lamb is not in the possession of the sinner who has taken the mark of the beast and turned and worshipped that image. They've rejected the lamb. So the altar is crying out, not in mercy. The altar is crying out for judgment, for there is no sacrifice for sin. There is no lamb that was slain. There is no substitute, and mankind has no salvation. Don't you thank God that we understood the truth of that altar? I couldn't help but think of a lovely hymn this morning when it was, I woke early because I only found out, only woke up to the fact I was preaching today, late yesterday. And um, I thought of this hymn, it was about well, half past five, I've been at the altar, I've witnessed the lamb burnt holy to ashes for me, and watched its sweet savour ascending on high, accepted, O Father, by thee. And lo, while I gazed at the glorious sight, a voice from above reached mine ears, by this thine iniquity's taken away, and no trace of it on thee appears. An end of thy sin has been made for thee here. 
by him who its penalty bore, and with blood is eternally blotted out, and I will not remember it more. It's not there, is it, in Revelation, you see. There's no, no sacrifice on that altar. It's just calling out the fire's burning, and it's calling out for judgment, and there's no substitute for sin. Now let's go to the next verse. And it's in verse 8. <clears throat> the voice from the temple, the voice from the altar. We'll find another one later on. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. You see? You want to talk about global warming. You want to talk about climate change, eh? Well, now this is the ultimate global warming. And who's in control? It's not man. <laughs> the same one's in control who always was in control who always is in control and who always will be in, true, in control. It's the Lord God Almighty. He doesn't hand over the control of things like that to puny man. I mean, we can't even start to think about the concept, let alone to control the outcomes. But God is always on the throne. He's ever in control. And it says, And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to the sun to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fire. And what did they do? What's the response? They blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues. They repented not to give him glory. One, they virtually abused God. Two, they refused to turn from their sin. Three, they refused to change their behavior. And four, they refused to acknowledge God. So you see... True and righteous are his judgments. He must act in judgment. It is right. It is giving what is deserved. There is no alternative because man will not repent. Judgment is God's last work. Judgment is God's strange work, the prophet says. He means the word there is, it's his alien work. It's the work which is not, as it were, that which is instinctive to him who is love, but a work which will done, be done because he is righteous, but he will only do it at the end, as it were. He will wait in grace for man to turn and repent. And yet even in these incredible times, the sinfulness of man comes out because they refuse to repent, they continue to blaspheme, and they will not give him glory. Verse 10, the fifth angel <coughs> Poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. In other words, darkness is going to fall. God is bringing his judgment on the very source of the evil on earth. Right? The very source of it, where it's all organized. And what happens is there's darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain. That's a, that's a powerful imagery. You know, when you start chewing your tongue because of the pain you're in, it's an incredible thought. Um, you don't even notice what the, how much the tongue hurts is against the pain you've already got. You're driven to it almost with a sense of, I can't. It's beyond coping or bearing. That's the picture you've got here. And there's the darkness that comes upon them, like the darkness of the land in Egypt, when God, in the land of Egypt, when God acted in judgment over Pharaoh. And verse 11 says, and verse 10 says, they gnawed their heart, their tongues for pain. Verse 11, they blasphemed. The God of heaven, because of their pains and their sores, and they repented not. There it is again. You've got to say it again. True and righteous 
are thy judgments, O Lord. The angel of the waters is actually very correct in what he says. The sixth angel, verse 12, he pours out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates. The water dries up. The way of the kings of the earth, of the east, are prepared. Now what am I going to do? Tell you what the Euphrates is all about and who the kings of the east are? No. All right? No. That's not, what's on my, that's not the point of what I'm doing from this book. There's a principle here to learn. And what God is doing, that river was obviously a boundary. That river obviously provided some sort of protection. And it stopped the invaders coming in from the kings of the east. But God takes away man's protection, you see. He overrules. And he works the counsels of his own will. That he intends that these things should happen. And happen they do. They say it'll never happen. We've got the river Euphrates. Don't you hear that cry today? Oh, we're safe and secure from all alarm. No, we're not. God steps in and the angel pours out the bowl and the boundary line is removed and the blockage is taken away. And what happens is, in comes that which is evil. Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. This is, an, this is a horrible verse. You know, what's happening here is the, the deception is being unmasked. It's being shown up to be what it is. Satan... The dragon and his emissaries, the beast and the false prophet, they've gone around and they've boasted great things, they've pulled off great miracles, they've made great speeches, they've laid claim to great things, they've said they've got great power, they've promised a great future, but when they open their mouth wide enough, all that comes out, uh, frogs, unclean spirits, the spirits of demons, devils, working miracles, and they've gone forth, these evil representations, the claims made by these evil emissaries of Satan, the principalities of powers of darkness, the rulers of the darkness of this world, the principalities and powers of the air. They've, they've gone to the kings of the earth in verse 14. And what they've done there is deceive them completely, the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God. Almighty. You see, using that power, satanic forces motivating the kings of the earth to gather and in that gathering to come to war. And in that great final warfare, there's the battle for ascendancy. There's a battle for supremacy. There's a battle among the kings, for the, amongst themselves even, as to who is going to be the greatest of them all. And isn't that the story of the world and its kings? There's always someone wanting to be the greatest of them all. What China rattles its sword, it wants to be the greatest of his all. Russia rattled its sword, it wanted to be the greatest of them all. Germany rattled her sword, she wanted the greatest of them all. Keep going back in history. Alexandra the Great, Greece, wanted to be the greatest of them all. In a weird and wonderful way, when Britannia ruled the seas, they too wanted to be the greatest of them all. The evil of it was just softened a little by the influence of Christianity. And in a weird way, the America has wanted to be the greatest of them all. And what happens? The whole thing comes tumbling down. Here they are gathering together to war, and all of them are there. 
And each is eyeing the other off as to who really has got the best army. Who's going to win this brawl and claim the victory of what they're up against. And what you've got is a a battle for supremacy with one another. But a, a battle for supremacy over the people of God as well. You see that later on in the book. There's a battle for supremacy over the people of God, over one another. And the battle for supremacy over Almighty God himself. That's what you really see. Because it's at this point in chapter 19 that God opens the heavens and the Lord Jesus comes and he claims the supremacy. The rider on the white horse, doesn't he? That's the picture of it. He claims the supremacy and he puts down the lot and he feeds their flesh to the fowls of the air and the birds of the trees. See, this is, this is the time, this is the picture we're getting here, the battle of the great day of God Almighty. This is where the forces of evil and the powers that be tear themselves apart. They've lived by the sword, they've perished by the sword. And it's all in God's perfect timing, in the hands of the Lord God Almighty, in a righteous God who will ultimately punish sin because it's not forsaken, nor is it forgiven. And you say, oh, when will this be? Oh, dear, you better read the next verse. Behold, I come as a thief. Right? Do you know what? <clears throat> Have you ever had a letter in your letterbox that says, Dear resident, I'm your local thief. At two o'clock tomorrow morning, I'll be at your place. Meanwhile, you're out in the lawn with a shotgun ready for him. Right? This is the whole point of this. It never happens like that. The thief comes when he's not expected and when he's not noticed. And the point of this verse is, now be careful here. He says, blessed is he that watches. In other words, you don't know when the thief comes. You don't know when I come. Your role is to be ready when I do. If you're not ready, he said, you keep your garments on. That's the point of this. Keep yourself clothed, dressed and ready because otherwise you'll be caught shamefully with your clothes off he said that's not what it's all about you are daily ready for your Lord to come and you are ever watching and eagerly waiting and you don't change your attitude at any given time because you sort of think well it can't happen yet because Russia hasn't done this to Israel and Israel hasn't done this to America and the land no 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 it's coming you watch and you're ready You're not looking at the times, you're looking for the Lord. That's the beauty. You're not looking for the times. And anyway, it's not given to us to know the times or the seasons. I didn't say that. The Lord Jesus said that. It's not given to you to know. It's in my Father's keeping. He said, he hasn't even given it to me to give to you. Not even the Son, it says. No man knows the day nor the hour. But the point is, be prepared for it's not given to us to know. And then finally... In verse 17, what happens to the last angel? He lifts up his vial and he pours it into the air. What's that a picture of? Well, the picture is this. Judgment goes everywhere. That's the idea. Everywhere. And then the voice comes out. There's not an area that's not covered. And what does it say in verse 17? And a voice comes, a great voice, out of the temple of heaven from the throne. Remember, it was from the temple where the law was. Now, this is a different area. It was from the altar where judgment was crying out and there was no sacrifice for sin. Now it comes from the throne, from the God who reigns, from the blessed and only potentate, from the sovereign God on the throne which is set in heaven and doesn't move. 
God is working out his own purposes. God is working out his own counsels. And he says it's done. There you are. Finally, the last bowl's gone. Into the air. There's no area not covered. There is no thing that escapes. There is no where that escapes. And there is no one that escapes. That's the point of it. The vial cast into the air. And verse 18 to 20, voices, thunderings, earthquake, mighty earthquake, city divided, Babylon falling, the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath poured out, every island fled away, mountains not found, hail falling upon men, the weight of a talent, and men are still blaspheming God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Look at it. Health, destruction of health. Environment, absolute disaster. Climate, total upheaval. Cosmic chaos. Mountains disappearing. Islands fleeing away. Earthquakes coming up. Civilization collapsing. Overthrow a city. Hailstones like you've never seen before. God pours out the cup of the fierceness of his wrath. The last bowl of undiluted wrath, leaving nothing behind and left. Nothing restrained and held back. This is final judgment. True and righteous are thy judgments, O Lord God Almighty. Because the very chapter ends with the idea that they did not repent and they blasphemed God because of the plague of hail. Truly the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? God is right, you know. He finally will judge. Every soul that knows not Christ as Saviour. Isn't it wonderful? Promises of judgment. And as a Christian, as a believer, you've got the promises of blessing. And you'll never see the judgment. Never. You'll never have the law scream out condemnation. Never. You'll never have the altar blazing with fire in front of you, demanding an answer for your sin. Never. Because we've been at the altar. We've witnessed the Lamb. Burn holy to ashes for me. And we've seen its sweet savour ascending on high. Accepted, O Father, by thee. Thank God for that. May our hearts take hope this morning and be blessed with the word of God. Amen. <clears throat> Father, as we close this morning, we have spoken on things that we don't really, that are too great for us to understand. And we do pray and trust that we have not misrepresented anything though we're aware that we have inadequately represented things. But Father, out of it all, may we learn the lesson of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. May we go into the week careful, indeed even fearful, lest we should sin against thee. And we'll make it our prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.